2 Timothy chapter number 2. We will start in verse 14. Actually, let's go ahead and start in verse 11. We covered 11, 12, and 13 last week, but this text today makes reference to them, so we'll go ahead and start there. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. I hope I'm not the only person who often asks myself, do I measure up? Do I meet the right standard? Now, oftentimes we can do this in ways that are unhelpful and unhealthy, right? We can compare ourselves to other people. We can compare ourselves to kind of these false rulers. We can give the wrong standard of comparison. Am I measuring up in my income? Am I measuring up in the praise of men? But we often ask ourselves, do we measure up? In fact, it's simply a part of life. We build in these structures to be continually measuring ourselves because it gives us an idea of how we're doing. Schools give out report cards. How is your child or how are you doing in your classes? We're getting on towards the end of the year, so those in higher education are about to get their report cards that say, did you learn what you were supposed to learn this year? We get them from our children. We get them in many different contexts. I serve on a school board, and on that school board, we get a report card on how our school is doing. And when that report card isn't good, there's a flurry of questions. Why? What did we miss? What are we not doing well? We all want to know how we're doing. In your work, you may get an annual review. There's nothing more frustrating than not knowing what the report card you're being graded on is, not knowing what the expectations of your job are. Now, sometimes as a pastor, that's something I struggle with. It's easy to measure based on numbers and programs. It's hard to measure based on sanctification. 
No one comes with a report card of how their sanctification has increased over the past nine months, or nine weeks, I'm mixing months and weeks. No one gives a report card that updates the church on how we're doing. And so we end up measuring ourselves by standards that may not be correct. And this text, Paul is giving Timothy something to measure himself by. He's giving him some standards. In order to be a worker approved by God, what must you be? He particularly turns this on the men he talks about in verse number two of this chapter. What you have heard from me in the presence of many faithful witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach also. He then kind of moves away from that focus in verses three through 13. But now he's coming back there. Remind them, remind these faithful men of these things. They want to be workmen approved. What are they supposed to do? What are they not supposed to do? First of all, the first thing we should notice is they are approved of God. The emphasis and these workmen is not how the world around them views them. In fact, in this book that focuses so heavily on the suffering of the workmen, we would not expect the world around us to give a good job review of a faithful pastor, of a faithful elder. The world around us might think an elder is doing a very bad job when in fact he is doing a good job. And so, in this text, Paul tells Timothy, to think of himself as a workman approved of God. So really, God is the one who is measuring. So how can we, how can a teacher, how can one of these men entrusted with the deposit of the gospel, how can he be a faithful worker? We're going to look this morning at four characteristics of a faithful leader. Number one, a faithful leader is not caught up in needless controversy. We're going to be bouncing around in this text. It's a very densely packed text, and it kind of moves back and forth, developing an idea and coming back to it. First one we're going to look at, we see first in verse number 14. Remind them of these things, charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So the faithful leader is not supposed to be quarreling about words. He comes back and revisits this idea in verse 23 have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So he's coming at this from two different sides. Don't be involved in quarrels about these things, but don't be involved in these things which produce quarrels. So he's setting up this attitude that the, the faithful leader ought not be caught up in needless controversy. Now, oftentimes this text can be misused. It can be stripped from its context to try and make an argument that we shouldn't care about theology in the church. That was one of the common mantras of the church growth movement was doctrine divides. Right? Doctrine divides. I agree. And sometimes we need to divide. Right? Sometimes we need to draw a line around a doctrine and say this is what the Bible teaches. This is foundational to our faith and we are immovable as we stand on this. When we look at the gospel, when we look at justification by faith alone, when we look at the identity of the Godhead as described in the doctrine of the Trinity, when we look at these essentials to our faith, these are not needless controversies. These are not idle words. These are the very heart of who we are as followers of Jesus. So this text 
should not be taken out from its context to say, anytime you disagree with someone, that's a bad thing. We should all just get along and peace, love, and watermelons. Everyone's happy. Nothing matters. That flies in the face of a New Testament that is written correcting doctrinal errors and addressing false teaching within the church. However, it does say that we ought not quarrel about words. Give some specifics in this situation of what the quarrel about words was if we jump down a few verses to verse number 17. Verse number 17, he gives an example. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And so, talking about these quarrels about words, he's going to give us an example. Here are some men who are having an argument about the resurrection. These are some guys who want to say the resurrection has already happened. And notice... Paul is rebuking them here. He's not saying, well, they're saying this and we shouldn't fight about words. No, he's saying they're making this issue. Now I'm going to address them. You see that doctrine of the resurrection, it seems like kind of just an argument about the end times, maybe the sort of thing we shouldn't worry about. But this doctrine that they're teaching has tremendous implications for Christianity, has tremendous implications for the gospel because... If the resurrection has already happened, what that means is that what has already happened at the time that Paul is writing this, that's the end. Okay? So they're basically saying that when you follow Christ, when you are united with Christ in his resurrection, it is a spiritual resurrection only. But it's already happened. We're already complete. And it takes away the entire promise of the gospel that Paul has just referenced back in verse number 11. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign. So these men are putting the focus on the here and now rather than on the promised end. And Paul says they're ruining the hearers. They're causing great damage. They're leading people astray from the faith. So there is a time when people must be confronted about false teaching, but there is also a time when we ought not be making idle quarrels about loose words. Verse 23, he really emphasizes that, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And certainly there are plenty of issues within the church that can be foolish and ignorant controversies breeding quarrels. There are all sorts of things that we can argue about, that we can take issue with, that we ought not to. So, it comes down to a matter of wisdom, matter of faithfulness. How do we decide when we're dealing with a foolish and ignorant controversy and we should just abstain from quarreling? Or how can we decide that this is a place where we need to plant our flag and we need to stand firm and we need to rebuke false teaching? There's not a black and white instruction given here. In fact, most of the Bible is not black and white instructions. There's a lot of truth, and then it's now live out this truth. And we've got to work through that. And in our conscience, through our study of the Word of God, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we've got to work on living out these black and white principles, but living them out in a gray world. And so let me give three questions that I think we ought to ask as we consider whether we should debate an issue, whether we should make our stand on an issue. 
Number one, is it worth even making into an issue? Is it essential to the gospel? Is this something that is worth having a discussion about? So let's give some examples, issues that are central to the gospel. The doctrine of the Trinity. It's a hard doctrine, right? The doctrine of the Trinity is difficult to express clearly. It's the quickest way to accidentally be a heretic is to start talking about the Trinity. It's hard, right? It's a challenge to work through that issue. Is it important? Does it matter that the Father is not the Son? Well, yeah, it matters that the Father is not the Son. Does it matter that the Son is God? Yeah, it matters that the Son is God. The very gospel hinges on the fact that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. The very gospel hinges on the fact that in Jesus, we have the fullness of the Godhead bodily and we have completely human nature. That matters. It's hard. It's difficult. We're going to have some disagreements on the precise wording of things. We're going to have to wrestle through stuff, but it matters. So we ought to talk about it. Does the location of Mount Sinai matter? Not so much. I remember in college, I took a Bible geography class and we spent an entire hour discussing whether Sinai was Jebel Laws or Jebel Musa. And you know, I don't remember which one the class even argued for, and it has never one time affected my life. It doesn't matter. Yet it's very easy to get wrapped up in those sorts of things. It's very easy to get all tied up in ignorant and idle controversies because they're interesting. And so we can make that our big issue. You know, I think this week we have a prime example of something that is ripe for this sort of thing, and that's an international politics and our relationship with the capital of Israel. Right? I'm not trying to make a political statement one way or another on what should have happened here. But I will say this, from a theological perspective, God can do what God is going to do when God is going to do it. There is no certainty that what happened this week means that we need to get our rapture pants on because we're going up in the next month. It doesn't follow. Doesn't mean we're not. Doesn't mean we are. Doesn't necessarily mean anything. Is there value in Israel as the people of God? I think so. Do we care about Israel in a unique way as a nation? Sure. As a church even. Do we look forward to the repentance of Israel one day? I think yes. Yet getting all wrapped up in the precise meaning of everything that happens, reading the New York Times as if it's Revelation chapter 22, that's not our business. We don't know what's happening in the world and how God is going to use it. I think that's a foolish controversy to get into. Uh, we've thought the end of the world is coming for a long, long, long time now. We talked in Sunday school this morning about the rebellion at Münster in Germany. The Anabaptists, they all went to Münster and they set up their kingdom. One of the guys claimed that he was David and started practicing polygamy and then were all killed by the Catholics and executed. And it, it was a bad situation. Why? Because everyone always thinks the world is ending. We don't know. We really just don't know. We haven't been told. It's a foolish controversy. So is it worth making into an issue? Question number two why do I care? Okay, so as I'm thinking about is it worth making an issue, why do I care? Do I care because I want to feel smarter? If I can just figure out this issue, I feel smarter. I like feeling smarter. I like thinking I know stuff. And so sometimes my motivation to controversy is just I want to know that I'm right and I want to convince everyone else that I'm right. Perhaps even more insidious 
is, does it replace Christian growth with information? Sometimes I think we get involved in religious controversies because if we can feel like we're right, we can feel like we're sanctified. If we can know that we have the right academic view, then we can view our standing before God as being benefited by just being smart enough. And so oftentimes, it is easier to focus on the academic issues, to focus on the finer points of theology, than it is to focus on actually following Jesus with my life. It's much easier for me, just speaking as a pastor, when I get to a text that has a controversial issue in it, those are easy texts for me to preach. Because I like the academics. I like the controversial stuff. I like parsing stuff out. I like reading the history. You know what's hard to preach? God calling me to suffer. That, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be confronted with that. I'd rather think about the relationship between the Father and the Son and whether it's one of eternal subordination or not. That's an issue that I can feel really comfortable thinking about because it doesn't challenge me to do anything. And how often is it when we get caught up in these idle controversies as a church, how often even when they are important things. How often is it that we latch onto a controversy because it's much easier to just try and be right intellectually than holy in my life? So ask ourselves, if we are engaging in a controversy, are we engaging in it purely for the sake of being right, or are we engaging it because we need to grow in Christ? Do I care? Because the glory of God is compromised. Yes then I ought to make an issue. If God's glory is being compromised, that's a big deal. Do I care because the gospel is being undermined? Well, then yes, this is something I ought to be able to talk about. I ought to make an issue. I ought to plant my flag and stand firm. But it's going to take a continual practice of wisdom for us. Think, does this matter? Am I arguing because I'm proud? The third and related to that last statement, the third question I should ask is, how should I discuss this? How should I discuss this issue? Do I discuss it with pride or do I discuss it with humility? So often when we have a conversation about even something we may be right on and it may be important, we do it with arrogance, with brashness, and with harshness that is simply uncalled for and talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves sinners. Anytime we're talking about the gospel, we ought to be talking with humility because the gospel says, I can do nothing and God can do everything. It makes absolutely no sense for me to talk about the gospel with arrogance. It's completely self-defeating because the gospel is at its core humble. What is the cost of this controversy? Verse 14 tells us it ruins the hearers. Our ideas have consequences. When we get caught up in these things, people that listen get distracted by them. People that listen are thinking about the location of Mount Sinai instead of thinking about following Christ and giving up everything to follow him. We're affecting other people. It says in verse 16 that it leads to more and more ungodliness. Where false teaching is allowed, false living will follow. More and more ungodliness. We see that in the church. 
We see churches that rejected the authority of Scripture in the late 1800s. All those denominations that rejected the authority of Scripture now reject anything that Scripture calls them to do. It's this process. Ideas have consequences. Verse 17. Verse 17, he says that their talk will spread like gangrene. It's poisonous. It leads to increasing decay. And perhaps most significantly, verse number 18, it results in some losing their faith. They are upsetting the faith of some. Timothy urges us to persevere, to endure. And false teaching causes us not to endure. False teaching turns us away from the faith. So it must not be allowed in the church. So what then is the alternative? What do we do rather than quarreling about empty words? What do we do rather than leading people astray from the faith? Verse number 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So the faithful leader does not argue about idle controversies. The faithful leader does rightly handle the word of truth. I think it's interesting, just a little subtle contrast in here. It says in verse 14, remind them not to quarrel about words. And then in verse 15, it says rightly handling the word of truth. Words plural, word singular right next to each other. Let's not be idly quarreling about our words. Instead, let's be focused on properly handling the word, the word of truth, the Bible, the word of God as he reveals himself to us. The alternative to quarrels about words is right handling of the word. The word translated rightly handle actually means cut it straight. Uh, some of you may remember who uh, grew up on King James. It's rightly dividing, okay? rightly handling. It, basically, the idea of the word is cutting a straight line. It makes me think of watching kindergartners do an art project. Right? And they're cutting things, but there's like jagged edges, or me doing an art project for that matter. There's jagged edges. There's coloring outside of the lines. They haven't developed the fine motor skills to cut straight. We're going to be wrapping Christmas presents soon, right? The presents for my wife are always terribly wrapped. Back when I was a youth pastor, I'd pay a girl in the youth group to do it for me. It was kind of nice. But now I try and wrap it, and it's always crooked, and there's always an extra piece of paper that has to get taped on to cover the little hole that I didn't make it big enough for. and It's never straight. But the servant of God is someone who handles the word of God by cutting it straight. Cutting a straight line. Handling it in the proper way. Doing with it what it was intended for. The faithful leader is someone who opens God's word and says, what does this mean? And then says what it means. The faithful preacher is someone who gets up and when they open God's word to preach, their goal is simply to say, what has God said here? The definition that I operate from is that preaching is removing the barriers between the audience and the meaning of the text. When I get up, my goal is that when you walk out of this room, 
you walk away thinking, now I know what that passage means. Not that you know what I think, not that you know what my feelings on something are, but that when I speak, I speak in such a way that you walk out of here saying, this is what God said to us in the word of God. I hope that I'm successful at that more often than I'm not. I know sometimes I don't feel like I'm successful. Maybe sometimes you don't feel like I'm successful, but that is the goal. When you open the word of God, if God was sitting in the front row after you were done, he could get up and say, yep, that's what I meant. That's what should happen when the word of God is proclaimed. That's the antidote to arguing about foolish controversies. What has God said? And again, the motivation is the approval of God. Like I said, if God is sitting there, does he approve of the way that we handle his word? As proclaimers of the word, elders bear a responsibility for guarding the flock from being ruined, ungodly, decaying, from losing their faith. And they do this by faithfully teaching the word of God. Well, that's all good and well for me, but if you're not preaching, what in the world difference does this make to you? Say, first of all, the church ought to have an appetite for such preaching. The church ought to have a desire that when they come, they want to know what God said, no matter how much it stings. They want to know what God said, no matter if their toes feel stepped on afterwards. That's their appetite. They choose elders who they trust to rightly handle the word. Your responsibility is making a good choice. Your responsibility is also, even when you're outside the walls of this church, making good choices in how you listen to the word being handled. There are lots of people around the world who like to publish their preaching. Are you discerning and listening to that? Is the preaching that you enjoy listening, maybe you listen to podcasts, maybe you listen to the radio, is your appetite fed by a desire to hear what the word says? Because there are an abundance of people who will tell you what you want to hear. They will tell you about how wonderful we all are. They will tell you about how great our life can be. They will tell us all of those things. And that's because there's people, there's always an audience to hear how wonderful they are. If you're going to tell someone they're great, someone's going to listen to you saying it. But if you're going to tell someone you're in rebellion against God, not so many people want to listen to that. Not so many people want to be told, you need to give up everything to follow him. You need to be willing to embrace poverty if that's what you have to do to follow Christ. You need to leave your father and mother and follow Jesus. You need to give everything up for him. That's not a message that people line up to hear often. What's your appetite when you think about what you're putting into your ears? Are you looking for more of the word of God? Or are you looking for more affirmation that you're fine just the way you are? We ought to be developing as a congregation an appetite for the right teaching of the word of God. So the faithful leader is one who does not get caught up in idle controversies. He rightly handles the word. And he also lives honorably. A faithful leader lives honorably. Verse number 20. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, maybe this passage gives you some flashbacks to 1 Corinthians. 
Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which we were just in a few months ago, talks about how there's different gifts in the body. This is not saying the same thing. Right? This isn't saying some of you are for dishonorable use, some of you are for honorable use, you're all diverse, that's great. No, it's saying we all ought to be for honorable use. There are some things that we ought to devote to a more sacred purpose. When we first got married, my wife used a toothbrush to clean the bathroom. Not the whole bathroom. Then we had kids. Now it's more like a broom. It covers more area at the same time. But at that time, she had this toothbrush. And wisely, she chose the same color toothbrush as my toothbrush. And wisely, she set that toothbrush on the sink. <laughs> and I don't know how long I was doing it for. <laughs> but more than once, I brushed my teeth with the cleaning toothbrush. That was a vessel for dishonorable use, and I used it for an honorable purpose. Certain things in our house are devoted to honorable uses. My daughter has lots of dishes. We don't let her play with the dishes that we use. There are things that are dedicated to certain purposes. And in this text, Paul is calling Timothy to be a vessel for honorable use. Not to just accept the use that you have. That's 1 Corinthians 12. We're talking about something different here. Be a vessel for honorable use. Well, what does honorable use look like? Verse 22. So, so he's tying us back in. Therefore, flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, if we're supposed to be vessels for honorable use, what's that going to look like? Flee youthful passions. Flee youthful desires. Now, this is often used to refer to sexual desires. I think that's overly narrowing the field, the emphasis of this text. Flee youthful passions. That kind of footloose and fancy free life that you can lead as a child that as you age, you learn that you can't do those things anymore. When I was in my senior year of college, I was going to Tennessee for spring break. I had a job interview down there. And I was driving through Milwaukee, and there was a sign for a Brewers game. And that sign for a Brewers game made me think of going to Brewers game with my friend John, who is from Pennsylvania. And thinking of Pennsylvania made me think of cheesesteak, which made me think of Philadelphia. And so on my way down to Tennessee, I took a left at Chicago, and I drove to Philadelphia, which is not, by the way, on the way to Tennessee if you're geography challenged. And I went to get a cheesesteak, which I ended up not getting because I got there too late and thought I was going to get mugged and had to keep going to make it to the job interview. It was not the wisest choice of my life. It's a good memory. You can do that when you're 21. You cannot do that when you're 32 and you have three children and a job and all the stuff in life. There's a change. You've all felt it, right? A few weeks ago, we had my in-laws over. And so my wife and I went with my brother and sister-in-law and we went out and we ate food at like nine o'clock at night. And it felt like we were living the crazy life. Before we had kids, that was just normal. Like 
you just did that stuff. Now I was, I was dead tired. I was at Target and it was late and this was unacceptable. This was craziness. I just wanted to go home to my warm bed because we age, we change our appetites, we mature. And so the honorable leader is someone whose appetites have matured. He's self-controlled. He doesn't just pursue every passion. He doesn't just pursue whatever he wants to do. He lives a life of self-control. He pursues what does he care about. He's not going to pursue his passions. He's going to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And you talk about living the high life in your early 20s. Usually you're not referring to that desire for righteousness, faith, love, and peace, right? That freedom of single, young adulthood. It's not usually talking about righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So Paul's saying, mature. Pursue things that matter. Be honorable in personal holiness. Be honorable in your relationships. Avoid controversy. And when you find yourself in a controversy, how should you be in controversy? Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, being captured by him to do his will. A faithful leader is honorable in how he treats other people. He tries to be winsome. He tries to talk to them gently and kindly and patiently because it's more effective anyway. A godly, faithful leader is not someone who's looking for everyone else to be wrong. He's not looking to belittle other people and make them seem foolish and stupid in comparison to his towering intellect. The faithful leader is someone who is honorable in his relationships with other people because he has a purpose. And notice how Paul grounds his honor and his relationships with the purpose. Because you might win some. God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They might come to their senses, escape the snare of the devil. But the problem is oftentimes when we are dealing with these controversies, even when they're controversies we should be confronting people about, we are confronting them not because we want to change their mind, not because we want them to repent, not because we want them to escape the snare of the devil. We're confronting them because it makes us feel like we're smart when we can show how stupid someone else is. The faithful leader is one who enters into controversies when necessary, but does it with the right goal of being used by God to bring someone to repentance. Winning the person rather than the argument. So that's the call for a faithful leader. He avoids foolish controversies, he rightly handles the word of truth, and he lives an honorable life. Why in the world would he do something like that? Why would he live in that way? And Paul starts us off by pointing our minds towards the reason. Verse number 14 again. Like I said, we're going to be bouncing up and down. Remind them of these things, okay? What are the these things that Paul wants Timothy to remind these leaders of? What do they need to know? Jump back up to verse 11. The saying is trustworthy for, if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 
So, while Timothy is supposed to be encouraging faithful leadership by having them abstain from foolish controversies, rightly divide the word of truth, and live honorably, the motivation that underlies that is this reminder of the gospel. If we die for him, we will live with him. If we serve him, if we endure, we will reign with him. So, he pulls them back to the gospel. As Timothy is training these leaders to guard the deposit that's entrusted to them, just like Paul's training Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to him, as Timothy's training them to rightly handle the word of truth, why is he doing that? Because the gospel means that it matters. There is an end. There is a future resurrection coming. There is a future reign coming. There is future life coming. And so the hard work of rightly dividing the word of truth, of rightly handling the scriptures, of abstaining from foolish controversies, from living honorably, the motivation for that is the fact that there is a future. The gospel makes great promises. He comes back to it again in verse number 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So when there's all this controversy going on, we anchor ourselves to God himself. The Lord knows who are his. Everyone who names the name of the Lord will depart from iniquity. And so the anchor of doing this hard work of being a faithful leader is found in the gospel of Christ. In spite of apostasy and faltering faith in the church, Paul points Timothy to the certainty of the gospel. As you see these false teachers leading people astray, you have this great uncertainty. What will the church be like tomorrow? Are more people going to follow these guys? Or are more people going to follow the truth? And Paul's lesson to Timothy is, when you are uncertain, there is something certain. God knows who are his. So proclaim that foundation. The leader must know the gospel, but the leader must also believe the gospel himself. If you will be a leader in Christ's church, you will face opposition. You'll face opposition from the world that doesn't like your message. You will find opposition within the church as you deal with people who don't agree with you. Or, as even more common, you deal with people who want to do what's right, but they're sinners just like you, and they stumble, and it's frustrating, and you wonder, is it worth it? to teach? Is it worth it to lead? What is the hope? It's that one day we will reign with Christ. That one day we will live with Christ. We'll face opposition from ourselves as we sin, as we grow discouraged. Faithful leaders are going to constantly feel opposed, yet their hope is found in the gospel. Life and reign is the future of those who believe the gospel. So if we will endure opposition, we will do so because we have absolute confidence that one day we will reign with Christ. I recommended this book last week. I'll recommend it again this week. John Calvin's little book on the Christian life. He says this, Of course, this present life has many attractions that entice us, many displays of comfort, charm, and sweetness, so that we are not enchanted we must be continually pulled away from such temptations. What would become of us if we enjoyed perpetual good fortune and delight, since even regular stings of misfortune fail to awaken us to the proper reflection on our misery? 
Man's life is but a vapor or shadow. He's writing about dealing with suffering in this world. And he says, you need suffering. Otherwise, you'll just be content with what you have in this world. You need to suffer. Otherwise, you'll think that this life is what you're living for. And Timothy, you need to face opposition because you need to live for the future where you will reign with Christ, for the future where you will live with Christ. Confidence in the gospel allows us to suffer in this life. This is true, certainly, specifically in this text of leaders in the church. It is true of everyone in the church, though. We are going to face opposition if we will faithfully proclaim the word of God. And I believe all of us have an obligation to faithfully proclaim the word of God. May not be standing behind a pulpit, but sitting at the lunch table at work, discipling our children, living in our community. All these times are places where we all ought to be proclaimers of the word. We all ought to be fulfilling the Great Commission. We will face opposition. We will face suffering. But we do so because we have confidence. And that suffering simply points out the fact that the whole creation groans and travails for its adoption. That suffering points us towards the future hope that we have. And we endure because of our hope. When the gospel fills our vision, we are able to endure through opposition discouragement, and misfortune. So the faithful leader must not be caught up in needless controversy. He must rightly handle the word. He must live honorably. And he must have his confidence in the gospel of Christ. That's the measuring stick of godly faithful leadership. The measure by which they are approved by God is faithfulness to his word, an honorable life, not being caught up in needless controversy, and confidence in the gospel. So how does that then apply to us? Okay. It's easy to apply this one to me. How does it apply to you? First of all, do you exemplify this kind of leadership yourself? We all have spheres in which we are leaders. And certainly the sphere of Grace Baptist Church could always use more people exemplifying these characteristics. Do these characteristics, do they describe you? Are you avoiding foolish controversies? Are you focused on rightly understanding the word of truth? Are you living honorably? Are you confident in the gospel? Because the church needs leaders like that. It doesn't need a leader like that. It needs lots of leaders. It needs all leaders. It needs a body where everyone can be described by these four things. If everyone in our church is avoiding foolish controversies while faithfully proclaiming the word and living honorably and trusting in the gospel of Christ, this is going to be a knockout great church. If everyone here is doing that, we will be a God-honoring church. Do you exemplify this kind of leadership? Do you desire this kind of leadership in others? Do you want Leaders who will tell you what the Bible says even when it hurts. Or are you like the listeners that are going to be described in a couple chapters who have itching ears, who want someone who's just going to scratch their ears, someone who's just going to make them feel good? Which one are you? What are you desiring? The measuring stick by which the leaders in the church are measured are clear in this text. Rightly handling the word of truth, avoiding needless controversy, living honorably, resting in the gospel. Because that last one, I think, is the most essential one. 
That last one, resting in the gospel, motivates all the others. If I rest in the gospel, I can boldly proclaim the truth. If I rest in the gospel, I don't need to worry about foolish controversies. If I rest in the gospel, I am able to live honorably. Christ instituted for us a reminder of what the gospel is. Christ instituted for us a way in which we can handle, we can taste, we can smell, we can feel what the gospel is, and that is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And when he was departing from this earth, he gave this to us so we would remember him, so that we would be faithful in his absence, so that we could endure. So this morning together, we are, as is our custom every week, going to observe the Lord's Supper.